0: I want to grab a songbook. Turn to one hundred thirty-one. This will be the song that we sing our children out for children's Bible hour with at this time. One three one, which is right in keeping with what we're going to be looking at this morning from the text of Scripture. I actually want to sing verse four
1: of one hundred thirty-one. Face-to-face, O oh blissful moment, face-to-face to, face to see and know, face-to-face face with my Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who loves me so. Face to face shall I behold him, far beyond the starry sky. Face to face in all his glory, I shall see him by and by. Good morning,
0: good to see all of you, glad you're here this morning, the Lord is glad you're here. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2, we continue in our series looking at and walking through the text of 1 John our series is called Blessed Assurance, First uh, John, the first epistle of John, a letter intended to assure Christians concerning their walk with the Lord, uh, concerning their uh, salvation. And here we come to verses, uh, verse 28, and we're going to read in 1 John 2, beginning in verse 28, we're going to read into chapter 3 to verse 3. Hear now the word of the true and living God. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let us pray. Lord God, we would see Jesus this morning, that we would see him clearly. We pray through your word. We pray, come, Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, Father, we pray that you would teach us how we ought to live in this world while we wait. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. I believe you are with me when I say that I want to go to heaven more than anything else in the world. This morning will be fine, sure. Amen to that. This text deals with several great Bible doctrines. One that's at the forefront here that John mentions twice is the second coming of Christ, the final coming of Christ. At the end of time, when He appears, when He appears. He says it twice in the verses that we read. But also, John talks about regeneration, the one who has been born of Him. He talks about the love of God. Wow, it has been out on that for a while, right? And indeed, John invites us to do just that. See or behold what manner or what kind of love the Father has for us. But He also talks about heaven and the eternal state. And we shall be like Him. And he also talks about sanctification, the ongoing process of purifying ourselves and being made pure by God. But again, what stands out here are those two references to the second coming of Christ, when Christ appears, and also the eternal state, heaven, where we will be like Him. And what John does is he reaches into the future And he says, your future determines how you live today. My future, your future, that impacts how you live today in the here and the now. The anticipation of future glory ought to be informative of how we live, move, and have our being today. And so John begins to summarize while moving forward. The summary statement is there in verse 28, and now, and that kind of summarizes what he's been talking about beginning back in verse 18, and we spent some time looking at uh, the Antichrist, and there are many Antichrists who've already gone out among you, but here's the deal, you're from God, and that's a a good thing, that's a beautiful thing. You stay with God, And, and he concludes in verse 27, he says, Just as the anointing that you have teaches you, you abide in Him. You remain in Him. And I believe that is John presenting to his readers the reality that, yes, you do remain in Him. And now he takes a step further. He says, little children, a a term of endearment. John's already used it a few times as we've gone through this. This is the aged elder, John, writing to these Christians that he loves and he addresses them with this term of endearment. He says, and now, little children, abide in him. And this, this seems to be an imperative, a command. Even as your reality is right now you remain in him, so now the command is keep on abiding in him. Don't stop abiding in God. And that's the exhortation that John gives to these brothers and sisters, even to us today. Abide in him. Remain in God. Don't stray from the pure doctrine, the pure apostolic doctrine, the pure gospel that you were given. Don't wander off into conduct unbecoming of a Christian. And indeed, in order to avoid both of those things, abide in him. Remain in him. And those who abide in Christ, those who remain with God, they won't wander off into false teaching and false doctrine. They won't wander off the path of righteousness into conduct that is unbecoming of Christians. No, remain in Him. And that's why you get this charge, you get this command here. And now little children, abide in Him. And here's the purpose. So that, so that when He appears, you see it here in verse 28. John reiterates it in 3 verse 2. When He appears. I'm not sure when that will happen. could be before the end of the sermon, before the end of the service, before the end of the year, or before the end of this decade, before the end of this century. Before the end of this millennium, we don't know. But when he appears, there's certainty involved here. The certainty that indeed he will come again, he will return. And when he appears, we notice the specificity here, John includes himself, Christians, those who abide in God, those who remain with him, we may have confidence. Not everyone has this confidence. The unbeliever will shrink in terror and fear at the coming judgment. Indeed, uh, this is pictured by the prophet Amos. In the book of Amos, chapter 5, there were those who were inviting for God to come in judgment. They they thought, uh, in Israel, they thought, this will be a good thing, because what God is going to do is going to judge all of our enemies, not realizing that their own conduct and their own behavior. They had not remained with God. They did not abide with Him, and as a result, they were outside of the covenant. They had broken the covenant. And so Amos comes and he says in verse 18 of Amos chapter 5, he says, Woe to you who desire the day of Yahweh. The day of Yahweh, day of the Lord, that is a phrase all throughout Scripture that looks to a day of judgment. He says, Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him and went to the the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of Yahweh darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? You don't understand those who are outside of the covenant. It's going to be a bad thing, a terrible thing. And Amos is even saying to his original audience, it's for you that God is going to come in judgment. Why would you have it? You've not remained with him. Ah, but those who have remained and those who do abide in God, John says here, as we come back to 1 John 2, you have confidence. There's no reason to be ashamed. There's no reason to be terrified. Why, we sang the song face-to-face. You realize you have been abiding in the presence of God throughout your life, oh, Christian. And all that's going to happen when he appears is it's just going to be a different manifestation of his presence. Indeed, you'll be face-to-face. Christ, your Savior, your Redeemer, your Lord. Yeah, we we will see Him, and that will be a glorious thing. John presents it here in a in a a positive and a negative way. He, he, that's a typical thing that John does here. First, he states a positive: we'll have confidence, we'll have boldness to stand before God. But then he says, and not shrink from Him. There's that terror. There's that fear. Uh, that uh, that's shame that's involved there. No reason to shrink in shame. And, and again, uh, it, it has to do with the presence of God. Because it says here, my English standard says, uh, not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Literally, it is in His presence. In His presence. Before Him. And indeed, even face to face. The presence of Almighty God is an awe-inspiring thing. And for the believer, John says here, no need to be afraid, no need to be ashamed, because you abide in Him. Indeed, it's a beautiful thing when He appears, when Christ returns. And indeed, it seems John has the final coming in Christ based on what he's going to say here in a few verses. Now, verse 29, John says, if you know that He is righteous, the He here, who is the He? Could certainly be Jesus. Jesus is absolutely righteous. Uh, He's going to continue on here, and He's going to talk about being born of Him, and that typically throughout Scripture, it has to do with being born of God. Well, is it God? Is it Christ? Well, in one sense, yes, because we serve the triune God, And indeed, the triune God is righteous. John says, if you know, and and this is absolute knowledge, in fact, the word there, if, I think could be translated sins, You, you know this, brothers, sisters, Christians, you know He is righteous. Well, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. You see, our practice of righteousness in the first place is rooted in the righteousness of God and the righteousness of Christ. He's righteous, and and therefore, if we would claim to be of Him, our practice, our habitual practice, our continual lifestyle must be one where we seek to do the things that are in keeping with His character and His nature. The habitual practice of the Christian is to act in a way that is becoming of our righteous God. But then also notice the connection John makes here to regeneration. He says everyone, or the one the one who practices righteousness is literally what he says there. The one who practices righteousness, and that's the present tense thing. That's the ongoing thing. That's our day-to-day practice. The one who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is the root of the fruit of our righteous practice. The root is regeneration. The root is you've been born of God. And I've talked about how tenses are important, and it doesn't exactly translate uh, perfectly into English, but essentially it's this, the perfect tense here. You have been born of God at some point in the past, and you continue to stand begotten of God. There are definite abiding results of that new birth, of having been born of God. Like what? How about practicing righteousness? (laughs) That's what he's saying here. That your new behavior is rooted in your new birth. Or we could even say it this way. Your new birth precedes your new behavior. That your uh, practice is proof of your parentage. You've been born of God, born of the Father. And it does seem the Father is in view because of verse 3, which talks about the kind of love the Father has. The kind of love that He has granted us new birth new spiritual life. We've been brought to this new spiritual life having been born of Him. And as a result, now we are practicing righteousness. There are other things uh, in 1 John, and we'll dig into them as we get to them uh, throughout this epistle. But uh, just briefly, let me make this connection here in 4 verse 7. 1 John 4 verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and the one loving has been born of God and knows God. So here you have new behavior, loving God as you ought, that is rooted in or preceded by the new birth. There's one more in five verse one, the one who believes that Jesus has been uh, that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, that's a very interesting one that your present faith is rooted in and preceded by your birth from God. Your regeneration. But again, we'll dig into those specifically when we come to them uh, uh, in the text of 1 John. But here, the emphasis is on your practice of righteousness. How you live in these days, my brother, my sister? Is your conduct in keeping with your new birth? Indeed, that is uh, something that every Christian unites around. And and it is is portrayed graphically when we are baptized. That our baptism, that's where we were dead and we're buried in the watery grave of baptism. A number of things happen there where we are uh, washed of all of our sin by the blood of Christ. The Holy Spirit comes and, and takes up dwelling within us. And then we are raised to new spiritual life. And we stand begotten of God And now we seek to practice righteousness. Can't go on practicing sin. John's going to have a lot to say about that when we get to it next week. But in the meantime, practice righteousness. You engage in behavior and actions and attitudes that are in keeping with God's nature, the things that He does. And again, it's the, the new birth that we experience. Having been begotten of God is rooted in the love of God. 3 verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Behold, what kind of love, what manner of love, your translation may say. Literally, it's of what country? <laughs> and that that is a... Uh, a common way that they had of expressing it. It's just saying essentially this, it's of, a, it's of an entirely different realm. It's of an entirely different origin, namely a divine origin. It's unlike anything that we experience here in this present world. And John is calling upon these saints, calling even upon us, just to sit and contemplate, meditate, bask in the love the Father has for you, my brothers and sisters. Wow. We talked about this love. It's The love of the Father is a, an everlasting love, a love from all eternity. And he loved us before He created anything. And it's out of that love that He has given birth to us that that we and, and you know when when we he's going to talk about that we should be called children of God and and typically in scripture that points to our adoption in Christ. And that's right. You know, there are places in scripture that talk about how we have been adopted into the family of God. John though in the language he is using, the terminology that he's using is pointing us to parentage. That God is our father, not just in an adopted sense, but There is divine DNA, as it were, that connects us to our Father. And He has called us His children. You know the things that you have done in your life. You know the sins that you have engaged in. You know how you have broken the Father's heart. You, like the prodigal, went off to the faraway country You, as a rebel, shook the fist at God and said, I'm going to do it my way. You know the crushing reality of sin. And John is by no way excusing that. We've we've been through passages already in 1 John where it has been accentuated just how grievous and heinous sin is. It is cosmic sedition against the ruler of the universe. We, creatures of the dust, Have the audacity to rebel against the King of Heaven. And then in love, the Father, mercifully, graciously, causes regeneration. Takes out that heart of stone, that rebel heart, and gives us a new heart that produces new affections, even our own love for the Father. Brothers and sisters, we've only touched the hem of the garment when it comes to the love that the Father has for us. Why do you love us like this? And yet He does. He has loved us with an incredible love, a great love, an everlasting love. And he calls us his children. And so we are. There's the present reality. You are. You are a child of God. My brothers and sisters, we are the children of God. And listen, this is a special privilege and a special blessing that only the saints of God have. It is exclusive for the body of Christ, the family of God. It is true that every single human is a unique creation of our Creator, created in the image of God, but only Christians are children born of Him, begotten of God. And in fact, as we get deeper into chapter 3, one thing he's going to point out is that everyone else is under the power of the evil one, and they themselves are children of the devil. He goes on here in 3 verse 1, he says, The reason why the world does not know us is it it did not know Him. And we could point to the historical reality of when Christ entered into this world, stepped onto the grand stage of human history, He came into His own, His own did not receive Him. They didn't want Him. Indeed, many today don't want Him. And because they don't know Him, they don't know God, they don't know us. They don't recognize us. children of God and that's what we are are not known by the world the world does not know us because it does not know God and again this is just in keeping even with what Jesus says in John chapter 14 we know verse 6 Jesus says I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me Philip asks a question, though, in verse 8. He says makes a statement. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And notice what Jesus says. He says, Jesus said to him, to Philip, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And this is the other component of this, and it's connected to what John has been arguing in chapter 2 about those who do not know Jesus that whoever does not have the Son does not have the Father. You cannot slight the Son and expect to call God your Father. And so it did not know Him. It did not know. The world does not know Jesus. They refuse to acknowledge Jesus. And as a result, since they don't see Jesus, they don't see the Father. Because if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. We know Jesus, brothers and sisters. And therefore, we know the Father and we are His children. What a glorious assurance. And it's also connected to why when Christ appears, there's no need for fear, no need for shame. It's Because when Christ returns, we see our Lord face to face, but then we also see our Father face to face. All these years that you've You've lived with the Father, and you've communed with the Father, and you remain with Him, and you abide in Him. And now, to see your Father, the one who loved you with such an incredible love that He sent His Son to die in your place for your sins, to save you, to redeem you, to grant you a new birth. Again, it's all the more reason Why I want to go to heaven more than anything else is to see my father and my elder brother, Jesus. Another term of endearment here, 3 verse 2, beloved. John loves these brothers and sisters. Why we ought to love one another. Beloved, we are God's children now. You don't have to wait for it. You are His child, you are His son, His daughter right now, present reality. You, we are God's children now. And by the way, that is presented, first of all, as a a, a current, a a present dignity. You are a child of the King of heaven, the King of the universe. And it also brings with it the present reality of our duty that we owe to God. Dignity and duty are captured in this phrase, we are God's children now. And so you owe it to your Father, who loves you with an incredible love, and who you love as well. You owe it to your Father to live in a way that glorifies and honors the Father. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. John here, again, is anticipating that future final state. Glory, eternal glory, future glory. And he is pointing to our future destiny. And again, that he's saying that also informs the here and the now. And he's going to emphasize that, we, especially in verse 3. But what we will be, we don't know. There, there's some mystery that's attached to this. It's true that the, the after his resurrection, Christ, his body had some unique features to it. I mean, he could still eat he, he ate a piece of fish on one occasion but also he could like when there was a room that was locked he would just manifest and show up in it peace be with you right uh, so he, he there it was it was the same but different and and so there's a sense in which we don't know what our our future bodies will be like we don't know what that future state is going to be like we get glimpses the at times in scripture the veil of Reality is pulled back, and we get this awe-inspiring vision of the heavenly throne, but we really don't know. And that's what John is emphasizing here. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know, and again, that's that uh, absolute settled knowledge, we know that when he appears, there it is again, when Christ comes back, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So let me first of all emphasize here, when Christ went back to the Father's right hand, he did not leave his human body behind. He is two natures united perfectly, without confusion, without mixture, in one person. He took his humanity with him to the Father's right hand. He has retained his humanity. That's emphasized here. We shall see him as he is. And he still currently is the man, Jesus Christ. Let me give you another text here that brings this out in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. 1 Timothy 2, 5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He has retained his humanity. This is is critical for a proper understanding of Christ and who he is. The second person of the Godhead has retained his humanity. It's an exalted humanity, it's his post-resurrection humanity, and it's it's we will be like him in that. And indeed, if Christ has shed his humanity, then he can't be the mediator between God and men, between God and people. So it's also critical to our inter... Uh, it, it's critical to our... Uh, Fellowship with God. He intercedes. He mediates on our behalf. We shall be like him. And again, there's a lot of mystery. There's a lot we don't know. Let me just speak briefly of what we do know. We know that heaven is a place of beauty and perfection. There is no sin. God, we've already seen, is light. He can have no fellowship whatsoever with any darkness, no sin whatsoever. And so, therefore, heaven will be a place without sin. Therefore, we shall be like him morally. Morally. We will be without sin. I think there's uh, an assumption that a lot of people make that in order to be human, we must be able to sin. The exalted Christ reveals that's not so. When we get to heaven, we will not be able to sin. Indeed, we will not want to sin. There will be no sin. There will be absolute purity, absolute holy. We will be absolutely pure, absolutely holy. It is true that now we have the ongoing process of sanctification where we are purifying ourselves, but we do that imperfectly. But over there, when we will be like Him, we will be like Him morally. We will be perfectly pure perfectly holy. We'll be free from everything that contaminates. Don't you want to go there? Heaven is also a place of perfect knowing. We get glimpses of this where the triune God knows Himself perfectly. The Father perfectly knows the Son, who perfectly knows the Spirit. The Spirit searches the deep things of God, and and so it goes. Here below, we don't know fully We know in part. And indeed, because we are uh, fallible and subject to error, we're subject to falsehood. I mean, uh, raise your hand if you are one who is perfect in knowledge. That was a good place not to raise your hand. Good. When we get there, we shall be like him intellectually. We'll be free from falsehood. Free from error. You know, there are blind spots in our faith. But when we get there, well, it's no longer faith, is it? And we shall see him as he is. Faith will give way to sight. And and so we will we will know perfectly. Now, let me just say this we will be like him. That does not mean we will be identical to him. We will not be omniscient, because omniscience is a quality and a characteristic, an attribute exclusive to God. But we will understand it better by and by as we sing. We will we will know more perfectly. And indeed, we will be fully known at that point. Don't you want to go there? Heaven is also a place of health and vitality, where we don't grow old, we don't grow weak. That's what happens here. We, we grow up. Our bodies betray us. They give out in certain ways. We are afflicted with diseases. I've had asthma my whole life. We scrape ourselves. We end up with scars. i got scars here, there, and all over. We shall be like him physically. We'll have a new glorified body. This mortal body will put on immortality. This perishable body, the imperishable, we will be changed. We will be like him we uh, will have a body that no longer has scars, no longer subject to disease. We will be strong, we will be uh, virile, we will be healthy. We'll have a new glorified body. Now, while there will be power, new spiritual, uh, 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 a spiritual body empowered by the Spirit... That doesn't mean we will be omnipotent, all-powerful. That's, again, a quality, a characteristic, an attribute exclusive to deity. But having that new spiritual body uh, that is powered by the Spirit, that's the idea. There will be no weakness, no imperfections. We will be fully human as we were intended. Don't you want to go there? We shall be like Him. And we shall see Him as He is. We will see Christ face to face. We will see our Father face to face. This is our hope. And verse uh, 3, Everyone who thus hopes in Him, and we do, we have this confident expectation to be like Him morally, physically, intellectually, and all that. Everyone who thus hopes in Him hopes on Him, uh, in Christ, on God, however you want to say that. I think both can be in view here. But it's certainly to see Him. Uh, Paul talks about in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, he says uh, uh, that when Christ returns, it, it's everyone who loves His appearing. And indeed, we, we love that, and we long for that. We eagerly anticipate it. Everyone who thus hopes in Him, Purifies himself as he is pure. This is the this is connected to practicing righteousness. You are killing sin. You are putting sin to death. We've talked about that. The mortification of sin. But it's also the cultivation of new and, and godly practices. It's not just enough to be done with sin, but now we have to engage in good, godly, righteous practices. The things that are becoming of a Christian. That's part of the purification process. Uh, one passage, one one connection here to make. Second Corinthians, chapter seven. You know, this is one of those texts that uh, people don't usually put it on bumper stickers or, you know, put the stencil on the wall, right? But it's a good one. <laughs> Second Corinthians seven, verse one. Since we have these promises, and you got to back up into chapter six, and you know, I will, I will be a father to them, and they will be my sons and daughters. We have these promises. We've talked about all the promises we've already looked at in First John as well. could be piled on here. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in fear of God. And here is John seemingly writing uh, years after Paul wrote that. He says, amen, Paul. We need to be people who seek to purify ourselves. We don't do it in and of ourselves with our own strength, our own power. We do this as we are empowered by the Spirit. The Holy Helper helps us to be holy. And so, yes, we are putting away the things that contaminate body and spirit, and we are seeking to bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. We are purifying ourselves knowing He's pure. And we're going to see him in all his purity one day. And again, he is pure, present tense. He's continually pure, and we ourselves are continually purifying ourselves. One writer put it very succinctly, the obligation of purity. He writes, those who know that God stands at the end of the road will make all of life a preparation to meet him. And that's what it is. All of our life is a preparation to meet our holy, our pure, our righteous God. And so therefore, yes, we are purifying ourselves. We are killing sin. Otherwise, sin will be killing you, as John Owen said. And we're also cultivating those practices. And it's all in anticipation of what is yet future, about how our, our future impacts the here and the now. Our future informs how we ought to live, move, and have our being right now. And when he appears, we shall be like him. And again, I ask, don't you want to go there? Then we must be like him today and every day. Let's commit this to prayer. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was, is, and is to come, we are of the dust, Sinners who sin, help us, Father, to put sin to death in our lives. Help us to purify ourselves as Christ is pure. Help us to practice righteousness as you are righteous. And all the more as we see the day approaching, Father, we want to be with you. Not only in the there and the then, but in the here and the now, Father. Help us to remain in you, to abide in you. Glory to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and evermore shall be. We pray. Amen. One aspect of abiding in Him, and again, that's relational language, it's communion language. Well, we're going to come to the table here in just a few minutes, brothers and sisters. Is there anything in your life that you need to confess to the Father some impurity, that you need the help that comes from God to put to death so that you might be pure. You know, in a moment when Gary leads us in song, that's your opportunity. My brother, my sister, come forward and express these things that are on your heart, on your mind. And we'll surround you with love and lift you up in prayer to our Father in heaven. And you will be prepared to come to the table. My friend, if you are here this morning and and you have heard the gospel about a God who loves you with an incredible love, who sent His Son to die in your place on the cross, if you have not yet been united to Christ, today is the day of salvation. To be in Christ means that you turn away from sin, you renounce it, this is repentance, you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, even Lord of your life, and you submit yourself to be baptized, immersed in water, to have all your sins washed away, you are united with Christ, you are baptized into Christ, and you are raised to live new life in the Spirit, as the Spirit comes and takes up residence. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit come to abide in you and you in them. You've not done that, my friend. We can help you with that even today. just a moment, when Gary comes and leads us in a song, that's your opportunity to come forward as well. And we can help you with that this morning. Maybe, brothers and sisters, you are grappling, wrestling with something. Could be something physical or emotional, mental, spiritual, what have you. But you want a private setting to unburden your heart. One of our shepherds will be available in the conference room. Make your way to the conference room. They will meet you there. they do the same thing there that we do here. Surround you with love and lift you up in prayer to our Father in heaven. Again, maybe it's something related to what we talked about, maybe not. The lesson is yours. The invitation is open. Won't you come right now while we stand and as we sing?